Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good evening, everyone. So um, when, when we first booked our tickets to come to Chicago, Holly and our boys, they were actually supposed to go to Australia uh, today to spend some time with family. It's been three years. Today was the only time we could book a flight using our miles. Uh, but just kind of on a whim, I decided to check out flights to see if anything changed over the past you know, week or so. And we were able to change her flight. The boys' flights, so they're going to stay uh, through Monday. So they're going to be here for the whole retreat. And so that was uh, so exciting for us. Um, you know, it sounds like such a small thing, but for us, this retreat has been uh, such a treat. You know, raising our kids in Manhattan is, is not an easy thing, and our church is very under-resourced in a lot of ways. Holly's having to fill in for children's ministry. Um, one time I volunteered, uh, even given my very low level uh, of skill with working with children, uh, very under-resourced in, in many ways. So coming here, having this robust children's ministry, our kids have been like raving about their experience over the past couple of days. They don't want to leave. And we were talking to some of the volunteers, um, just like Karen exhorted us to talk with the volunteers. I, I chatted with some of them, and I was saying, hey, thank you so much for this program you're putting on for all the kids. They're absolutely loving it. Can we extend this out for one more week? And, you know, they politely laugh, but little did they know I was dead serious. Uh, our kids have been absolutely loving uh, their time here. And so I wanted to uh, share one quick story about Pastor Dave, uh, just to embarrass him a, a little bit. And um, th- this is our fall retreat that our church had last year, where Pastor Dave was our guest speaker. It was a really powerful time. And I remember telling our church, uh, you know, our guest speaker is someone who uh, I knew from the church that I interned at back when I was in seminary. Uh, He's a very important pastoral mentor of mine. And when Pastor Dave showed up, they were all surprised because when I said mentor, I think they were thinking like Mr. Miyagi. Um, Hair grayed and thinned out. But Pastor Dave showed up with uh, skinny jeans and a a fitted shirt. And he's telling analogies, stories that are landing with, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, hip-hop references, uh, and they were pleasantly surprised. And, you know, people so enjoyed his preaching that at the end of the retreat, you know, some of them asked me, hey, does does Pastor Dave have a podcast? And I said, no, he doesn't, but, you know, we can start one if you really want, right? Um, But we really enjoyed having him come out uh, to New York and... um, wanted to butter him up a little bit just by telling him that our church really enjoyed him. But here is um, our, our passage again from Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm not going to read it for us again, but what I want to do talk, is talk about uh, a picture of oneness. And what, what are the contours of unity? What are the contours of oneness? Uh, the healing power that can come out of a community that is set on fire by God. And this passage doesn't provide a lot of, uh, it doesn't give a picture as to what this kind of community can look like, which is why I wanted to draw on uh, Acts chapter 2, which is a very famous passage that talks about the biblical model of oneness and community. 
So I'm going to read this for us and draw out three characteristics uh, from this passage that I think can help flavor our understanding of what oneness is all about. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily uh, those who were being saved. Can I pray for us one more time before we jump in? God, tonight as we explore what your word has to say about oneness, um, God, we pray that your spirit would be here uh, removing the scales from our eyes, uh, tearing down the barriers in our hearts that keep us from living into this model of community. But God, we, we know that your spirit is in fact a spirit of unity and oneness. And when your spirit comes alive in our hearts and in this church, God, we know that the sky is the limit in terms of what you can do in Harvest Community Church. And so we pray that tonight uh, your spirit would come down in power through the words that I speak. God, all of our hearts open to what you might have to say to us in this moment. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I wanted to draw out from this passage um, three characteristics of oneness, but rather uh, three commitments of oneness, three commitments of oneness. And I'll start off by reading this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says that the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. The first commitment of a community that is dedicated to oneness is a commitment to a higher cause, a commitment to something that is greater than, something that transcends the community itself. When community itself is the highest goal, it can often be toxic to a community because it creates unrealistic expectations that nobody can meet, uh, standards that are so lofty and idealistic that nobody can meet those standards. And it's much easier to love the idea of community than to actually love the people in community. And of course, if you're married, you know that's true in marriage too. When a couple so focuses on the other person, expecting that all of their social and emotional needs will be met by that person, it's inevitably going to result in disappointment because there is no single person who can meet someone's entirety of their social and emotional needs. And that's why in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 and 43, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They were driven by something that was greater than themselves. They weren't just focused on their own relationships, but they were driven by being awed by the power of God. They were committed to the teachings of Scripture. And ultimately, it was the knowledge and the experience of God that was the foundation for their community. It was that higher cause that was the fuel that drove their oneness. I remember uh, some years ago, so this is I think in 2008, when I first asked uh, Holly's parents uh, for her hand in marriage. And this is in Australia where they were living. And 
I think I took them out to a, a dim sum restaurant. And we were sitting there, and I was nervous, uh, partly because my Korean is so bad. And I, you know, I tried to talk to them in Korean, but Holly's dad stopped me and said, can you just speak in English, please? And uh, you know, I didn't take offense to that. I know how bad my Korean is. And so I continued in English, and he you know, started to give me some advice as to what marriage is all about. He's, he's in his early 80s now. They've been married for uh, 40-plus years, I think. And he takes out a napkin, and he starts to draw a picture. And at this point, I'm still a little anxious. I have no idea what he's about to do with this, this envelope, this, this napkin. And he draws a triangle. And a very simple, kind of cheesy illustration uh, that he was drawing on this napkin. And he drew this picture uh, with a pencil. God at the top, husband and wife on the left and right. And he said, uh, in his broken English, the key to your marriage will be when you commit yourself not to one another per se, but when you're striving for a higher goal, that is communion and intimacy with God. That will be the fuel for the strength and the health of your marriage. A very simple point of something that I, you know, of course already understood going into that conversation, but nevertheless, a very important reminder uh, of a very simple and yet profound truth that when we prioritize God and the teaching of Scripture, that's when a true relationship can flourish. That's when community can actually flourish. And I, you know, this is true, I, I imagine, for all the married couples here, too. Whenever we're going through a rough patch, there is a direct correlation between how we're doing with God and the health or even the unhealth of our marriage as well. You know, it's easy to blame the other person. It's easy to blame community when things are not going well. But we first have to wonder, how are we doing with God? How is our spiritual walk with God going? I remember when I was serving at... Um, Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New York uh, five or six years ago. And at that time, I read a book that uh, Tim Keller wrote. I don't know if it was his book on prayer or on marriage, but he gives this example of the importance of prayer in preserving a marriage. And I think his wife, Kathy, was the one who brought it up and said, you know, Tim, if we want our marriage to thrive for decades to come, we have to commit ourselves to praying for one another every day. And you know, imagine yourself, Tim, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have this pill, and if you miss one day of taking this pill, you will die. You're suffering from a terminal illness. You have to take this pill every day. Otherwise, you will die. And prayer is just like that. We have to prioritize prayer every day with that same kind of intensity, that same kind of urgency. Otherwise, our spiritual vitality as a married couple will deteriorate over time. And I remember that analogy. I loved it so much. Uh, we applied it for about three days, and, uh, and it, it kind of waned. It's hard to stay committed to something like that without that sense of urgency. But... I was at the Redeemer offices one night, uh, late at night, just sitting in the pantry after a meeting one night, and all the pastors, at that point I was like a ministry intern, all the pastors and the elders were in some boardroom having this important meeting, these big decisions that I have to make, and uh, Tim Keller walks out of the room into the pantry, and I was like, what is he doing leaving that meeting uh, at such an important point? He didn't know I was there sitting in the pantry, but I heard him uh, talking on the phone with his wife, Kathy, and... I was pretending like I wasn't there, but I was still listening in on what they were saying. 
And what he was saying was basically, you know, Kathy, hey, I'm in a very important part of this meeting. Uh, we've, we're about to make the decision now. Let's, let's quickly pray, and then I've got to jump back in. And they pray together. And I realized the story that he tells in his book, he was living it out. He was actually so committed to prayer that not even an urgent meeting could stop him from living into this commitment that he had made with his wife to pray together every day. And I was uh, so moved by that. And, uh, you know, living out that commitment that they made and the urgency that they felt to have their marriage not prioritize one another, but something greater than themselves, namely God and prayer and the teachings of Scripture. And so it is with community. And imagine, imagine the kind of community we could cultivate if we were similarly committed to prayer with that kind of urgency, uh, similarly create, uh, committed to uh, Scripture, the teachings of the apostles, to the signs and wonders that God was doing, being awestruck by the miracles that God was working uh, in our congregation. Imagine what could happen if we were committed to that kind of higher cause. And so that's the first commitment of oneness, uh, committing to a higher cause. And the second thing that this community was committed to in Acts 2 was a commitment to doing life together. There's, a, there's an article, it's, it's one of those timeless articles that uh, is relevant uh, many, many years after it was first written. It was called, Why is it hard to make friends over 30? And I realize there are people here uh, who are not over 30, but the point that the article makes is that uh, oftentimes the closest friends that we make, we, f- we meet them in college when we have a lot more time, uh, more energy, we live in close proximity to one another. But as we get older, there are more and more barriers to cultivating that kind of intimacy in friendship and in community. We get married, we have children, our jobs get more demanding. We don't have the same relational capital that we used to have. We don't have the same incentives to find friendships. We're not as motivated for all kinds of reasons. We're too tired. And what happens, though, in the article, it talks about how... uh, Getting older, though, doesn't change our need and our craving for deep, intimate relationships. And that need becomes so acute when moments of crisis hit our lives. And there are all these people in middle age, uh, 40s, 50s, and beyond, who uh, lost a spouse, lost a child, uh, lost their job. Uh, And in those moments of darkness, realized that they had no close friends. They had no close community. And the article goes on to talk about why is that the case, that the older we get, the harder it is to invest in deeper community. And it talks about three things. Uh, The first is the lack of proximity. People move around for a job, bigger home, bigger yard. Uh, The second is uh, repeated, uh, unintentionally planned uh, interactions and just kind of bumping into each other randomly. Uh, That was the second ingredient for deeper community and friendship. And the last one was having spaces where people can be vulnerable, where they can be themselves, where they can share uh, openly with one another. And as the article was talking about these things, it occurred to me that all it's doing is really echoing the wisdom of the Bible in Acts chapter 2. I mean, these are the things that mark the early church uh, as we just read. And 
you know, living in New York, uh, that kind of community is also extremely hard to come by. Uh, you know, people move to New York uh, because of career, they want to earn a certain threshold in salary, and they're often there for a year, maybe two years. Uh, some people want to stay longer, but when they have kids, it becomes a lot more challenging to build that kind of community. And New York is extremely transient. And as a result, people are just so lonely. You know, one of the densest cities in our country, but I think one of the loneliest cities as well. And the fact that there are so many people around you just exacerbates that feeling of loneliness because you think that you should have a lot of relationships, but you don't. And being surrounded by people doesn't help that reality either. And what I realized about a community in New York is people's priorities are so uh, disordered. That community is sacrificed on the altar of all these other competing demands on their time. Uh, success, the desires for achievement, uh, job promotions, whatever it might be. And whenever we get our priorities mixed up in life, uh, chaos and disorder ensues. And it's like uh, having a jar full of water and oil. And you shake up that jar, and it's chaos in that jar until you let it sit, and the oil starts to settle above the water. It's only when the priorities are rightly ordered that there is peace and harmony and order. But when that order is out of place, when the priorities are out of place, it's only chaos and disorder that ensues. And I think the same is true when we sacrifice community in the name of all these other things that should be subservient to the role that community should have uh, in our lives. Uh, in Acts 2, it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. And verse 46, every day they continue to meet together uh, in the temple courts. You know, the Bible was, was onto something here, and the article was kind of alluding to it, but uh, proximity, the regular interactions that they had was so critical to generating that kind of oneness that I think all of us desire on some level. And I, I heard about uh, the recent acquisition of the building uh, for the church and just thinking about the possibilities that that can open up for the community, the groundedness, the rootedness, uh, having this central meeting location where all these interactions can begin to happen with more frequency. Uh, it's so exciting to be a part of this church in such a critical time in Harvest's history. Uh, having this place, like is pictured here in the early church, but an actual physical location, something that we in New York, we have no category for. We're thinking of buying a building in New York. It's just not even on our radar. But the fact that your community has that possibility of purchasing a building, renovating it, having a service there, it's just unthinkable for us in New York to even consider uh, something like It's like a pipe dream. But having such a meeting place like that uh, to breathe this kind of community is exciting, so exciting to think about. And I wanted to touch on a few other elements of, of oneness here. Uh, this idea of doing life together, what else it was marked by? And in verse 44, it says that all the believers were together and had everything uh, in common. Uh, emphasis on all the believers. You know, they didn't, they didn't pick and choose who was a part of that community. Just by virtue of being a part of the early church, they were spiritual family. And this community wasn't 
a country club. It was a family that was chosen by God. And by virtue of being a part of this community, they were committing themselves to discomfort on some level. And when you evaluate your own comfort level in the church community, uh, if you always feel comfortable all the time, it probably means that someone else feels uncomfortable some of the time. And it's only when we commit ourselves to discomfort, you know, talking with people who are vastly different from us, uh, personality, interests, hobbies, uh, socioeconomic, strata, ethnicity, whatever it might be, uh, when everyone commits themselves to discomfort, it helps those who feel uncomfortable feel a little bit more comfortable. And I remember talking to a friend uh, in New York, um, similar in age as me, and he was trying to find a school for his daughter, who I think is elementary age, and he told me that he was considering sending her to uh, a school that was designed for uh, the deaf and the hard of hearing. And I was uh, intrigued by that. Like, why would you send your daughter to the school that is designed for the deaf? And what he said was, the school reserves uh, 50% of their seats for those who are not deaf because what they're trying to do is create a community of difference. Half deaf children, half not. And everybody who goes to that school learns sign language. And what he wanted his daughter to learn was that there are going to be people in your life that you encounter at various points as you grow up who will be vastly different from you. What he was trying to teach his daughter was empathy. And the willingness to place herself in discomfort so that someone else can be a little bit more comfortable. I thought that was a beautiful picture of what community can be like. Everybody on some level committing to some kind of discomfort uh, so that someone else can feel just a tad bit more comfortable. Another characteristic of this commitment of unity and oneness is in verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It counters the, the cultural impulse of competition. And there's one author who shares a story of uh, indigenous children living in Canada. And they were offered a prize for, one student offered a prize for answering a question correctly. And when the teacher asked the question, uh, she was surprised because the entire class would discuss the answer first and then all answer the question together. And what she realized was that student body was so committed to not leaving one other student behind. It was such a communal context that they didn't want one person to only get the award and have everyone else not receive it. So they all discussed the answer amongst themselves and then answered together. And I was so moved by that because it was such a profound example of putting the community above the interests of the self and the individual. I remember... Uh, this was last summer, and we were visiting my brother's family who lives in, in Naperville, which, uh, coming from Manhattan, is like the promised land. Uh, just green, rolling hills everywhere, and uh, chain restaurants on every street corner. And our kids just thought it was like Disney World. And my brother has a large backyard, and you know they're playing every day, running around like they can't do in, in New York. And... Uh, some of you might remember this, but 
there was a tornado that passed through Naperville last summer. And the first time that I had ever lived through anything remotely close to a tornado. And I remember we were sitting inside the house and wind like banging against the house uh, so loud, I had no idea what was going on. And in that moment, we probably should have ran to the basement to take cover, but we all ran to the window to look at what was happening. And uh, trees just completely bent over 90 degrees. And uh, the strength of that wind was unlike anything I had ever seen. And when the tornado actually passed through, when we saw the damage, I had never seen a neighborhood like that before firsthand. Uh, walls of en- entire walls of houses ripped off, and decks and backyards just completely flipped over. Uh, trees just completely toppled over as well, shorn off uh, at the trunk. And uh, my brother's home also took a massive hit. The biggest tree in his backyard was completely uh, toppled over. And you know we were we were there on vacation, and the first thought I came to my mind was, are we going to have to help him actually uh, break up that tree and clean it all up? And can we just call the professionals to come and clean it up? We're here on vacation, you know. And um, over the next three, four hours, uh, people from their church just started to show up. And at one point, I think there were over 15, 20 people there, uh, neighbors, people from their church, to help them chop up that log and to transport it out of their lawn. And I was so blown away because in New York, if you ask someone for help just to help with moving, no one responds to those emails, right? They always expect you to hire professionals to do that work for you. But there I saw a picture of, wow, what a beautiful image of uh, giving up time and resources and energy for the sake of building up the community. And that, that picture remained in my head. I told that story to my church when I went back to New York as well uh, to give them a little guilt trip. Um, but I, I was so moved by that. And uh, what a beautiful illustration of this here, that selling property possessions, not only property possessions, but also time, energy to give to anyone uh, who might have need. Uh, This idea of life together also uh, means uh, it involves things like breaking bread in people's homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts. And I think this facet of doing life together speaks to the polarization that has marked our culture at large. And I think part of the reason for the increasing divisiveness in our culture is the lost practice of eating meals with people who we disagree with, Uh, eating meals with people who are uh, different from us. It's very easy to call someone stupid because of ideological differences when you're typing behind a computer screen. But it's much harder to have those same feelings when you're sharing a joke with them, when you're laughing at something that they shared over a meal. And I think the pandemic has only heightened tensions because we're not spending, we haven't been spending this kind of time together with real flesh and blood people to disastrous effect. And Acts 2 is really onto something. The practice of breaking bread, eating together in people's homes, works wonders for oneness. Works wonders for oneness. Breeding a spirit of unity in a community. And as we, as we come out of the pandemic, 
this kind of community that's pictured for us in Acts 2 is becoming more and more possible. And I think we realize that by trying to do this virtually, I think we've all come to the conclusion that that was a very poor substitute for the real thing. And we all need oneness more than we could ever realize. And I think so much of our spiritual malaise uh, coming out of the pandemic is due to that reality, that we haven't engaged in that kind of thick and deep community like we used to. And being deprived of those connections has, uh, has weakened our spiritual immune systems. We're more susceptible to the enemy. We're more susceptible to our flesh and to the world because we don't have uh, that same kind of thick community protecting us from those things like it used to. And I, I imagine there are many people in this room who feel uh, distant from God. That's probably the most common thing I've heard from people in our church uh, coming out of the pandemic. I feel like God is so far away. Uh, I don't remember what it feels like to talk to him, uh, to commune with him. And I just don't know him uh, like I used to. And, you know, when, when, you're, physical, when you're physically hungry, you have certain physical sensations that alert you to that fact that you are hunger for food, hungry for food. I think in a spiritual way, there are certain warning signs that our spiritual mechanisms start to give us as well. Uh, loneliness, the isolation that we feel, the spiritual depression that we are trying to wade through, I think those are ways that our spiritual selves are telling us that we are actually spiritually hungry for a different kind of community as well. And so the question becomes, how do we do away with that spiritual hunger? And it's by plugging into this kind of community, by desiring and working towards making an effort to build this kind of oneness, uh, not by withdrawing from it. So doing life together, committed to doing life together, is one of the markers, uh, another marker of oneness. And the, the, last, the last commitment of oneness is a commitment to the grace of God, a commitment to the grace of God. And jumping back here to Acts 2, the last verse there, it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were uh, being saved. And I don't think what's important here is the numerical value of what's happening in the community. I think the emphasis is on the Lord. The Lord was doing something supernatural in this community. And it was manifesting in all kinds of ways, including uh, growing in numbers too, as one marker, not the only marker, but God was doing something uh, in this community. And the secret ingredient to oneness was the gracious initiative of God. And that, of course, is the pattern of the entire Bible. That when, when God calls us to do something, he, he gives us grace first as the fuel to empower us to go out and do it. Uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the introduction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, before God says things like, do not have any idols before you, uh, do not make a graven image, etc., etc. Before God does that, he says, remember that I was the one who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. 
Remember that I was the one who initiated this work of grace in you. Now go and follow these Ten Commandments that I now give you. Or when the Bible commands us in the Old Testament to welcome and love the foreigner and the stranger in our midst, again, it doesn't just call us to loving the foreigner and stranger. It says, remember that you were once foreigners and strangers in a distant land in Egypt, and I showed you grace and mercy. I rescued you. Now go and show love to the strangers whom God has placed in your life. Or when the Bible calls us to generosity, it doesn't just say, Go and give more to the poor, give more to the church. It says, remember that you were actually once poor. Uh, you were spiritually poor. And Jesus, who once had all the riches of heaven, gave it all up and embraced spiritual poverty so that through his poverty, you might become spiritually rich. And out of the abundance of those resources, now go and be generous to those around you. That's the pattern of the entire Bible, that it's God's gracious initiative first that then gives us the fuel to go out and turn to love the community, to love the foreigner and stranger in our midst, to be generous. And when we think about oneness, fostering unity and belonging and healing in our community, we first have to recognize that we were the recipients of that kind of healing in the first place. We were the recipients of that kind of belonging. And it's only when we first understand that truth, that spiritual dynamic, that we can then in turn go and invite other people to belong here, that we can strive and make every effort to, to cultivating uh, that kind of unity too. When, um, when we made a transition to our, our current church now, we've been there for about uh, a year and a half. And before that, we were at a larger church. And... I think partly because of the uh, growing convictions that uh, Holly and I started to have, uh, largely an influence of uh, the community here on us. But we started to realize, I started to realize that so much of the health of a church is directly related to the strength of the community. And this is not a a criticism at all, uh, but I do think that in our experience at a much larger church, it was really hard to create and build that kind of intimacy and community that I was increasingly thinking was so critical to spiritual growth and vitality and so consistent with the pattern that we see here in the New Testament too. And, you know, we eventually made uh, this transition and it hasn't been an easy transition. It's been challenging in all kinds of ways. Uh, Like Audrey shared earlier, community can be so, so messy. Uh, But I think in a very important way, uh, that conviction has grown even stronger in my own heart, that uh, when we're able to relate to each other and do life together and look to the grace of God and growing together, uh, I think that's how this can actually happen. And it's messy, it's hard, but it's the way of Christ. And it's how the gospel is meant to be played out uh, in our lives. Uh, I think that kind of oneness can only happen when there is that kind of commitment to making it happen in a community like this, where people are committed to one another uh, in a very deep way. I remember having another conversation with uh, the director of a a large counseling center in New York, too, and just getting at this idea of how important it is to have presence in one another's lives. 
And uh, this counseling center in New York, there's, there's always a wait list for, especially during the pandemic, more and more people wanting to sign up for Christian therapy and counseling, uh, all kinds of psychological, spiritual issues that have surfaced during the stretch. And they're just completely overrun. And they're always looking for more counselors who can help out, serve the needs of the city. And I was talking to this director, and I asked her, what's... Um, What's the secret ingredient? Like, why, why do you think it's the case that so many people are coming to this counseling center? Like, what's, part, what's your strategy? Uh, what, are, what are you saying in these conversations that is unlocking some kind of key to spiritual growth in people's lives? And what she told me was they, they do these exit interviews uh, with all their clients who pass through that center. And they ask, what, what is it about the counseling experience that you had that was such a pivotal part of your healing. And what she said really surprised me. It wasn't, it wasn't some kind of novel framework. Uh, it wasn't some kind of uh, new insight. Uh, it wasn't even necessarily what they were saying. But in these exit surveys, 70% of people said that it was simply the relationship itself that determined the success of those counseling interactions. Just simply having someone there listening to them uh, week in and week out, uh, just saying simply, that's really hard. What you're going through is really hard. And that's it. That was the main determining factor for the success of these counseling relationships. The regular presence of someone else sitting across from them uh, at a table being there for them week in and week out, presence. And what it, what it showed me was uh, communicating grace to one another in a tangible way is such a distinguishing mark of oneness. You know, it doesn't take a lot of knowledge. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of insight to cultivate that kind of community. All it really takes is a commitment to being present as a way to communicate in a tangible way the grace of God uh, to them. And that is my story as well, that for Holly and I, that is our story too. What set us off in this trajectory of, uh, I think, increasing health in our own marriage, in our family life, uh, in ministry as well, is we've just been recipients of so much uh, grace in our lives and uh, indebted to the community here for a lot of that too. And I remember... When, um, when we first moved to New York, uh, us, when we first came to Chicago for seminary back in 2012, I was living in New York for some time. This is the last story that I'll share. Um, and you know, New York is it's a very young city. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s. And you know, Holly and I got married uh, 12 years ago, and we're just surrounded by singles and other newlyweds, just like the blind leading the blind. And, you know, we're, we're talking in small groups about, like, how do you, we're experiencing this in marriage, we're fighting, we're arguing, what do you do? And they're like, I don't know, we're fighting and arguing too, we don't know what to do. We just didn't have anyone who was ahead of us in life. And that was challenging, it was challenging. And when we moved to Chicago, we knew Pastor Dave and Jeannie, and we joined Harvest, and I uh, served as an intern. And for the first time, we were interacting with people who were, ahead of us, half a generation, generation ahead of us. 
And that did so many wonders for our marriage and our family life. And I think what was so um, impactful about that time was uh, I was just, I mean, I look back to the things I said and did early on in our marriage, and I cringe. I'm just like, I can't believe I did that or I said that. And I remember on a number of occasions, I would talk to people in my CG. I would confide in PD, and I would share these things. You know, I, I did this. I did that. Uh, and feeling so much shame for those things and expecting that I would be you know, reprimanded. You know, I'm a, a, a child of first-generation Korean immigrant parents who uh, disciplined with uh, sternness and were so strict and hard. And I think I was conditioned to expect that uh, if I confided in someone, that that's how they're going to respond to me too. And I still remember so vividly the conversations I would have uh, with PD, with people in our CG. I would share these things, and they would respond with so much grace. You know, I, I was there too. Or uh, I've done similar things. Or, you know, this is the reason why these things are happening in your marriage. This is the reason why these things are happening in ministry. And I was afforded so much grace. And people telling me things like, do you, do you think that your confidence in yourself comes from anything that you've ever generated? Or do you think your confidence should come from the grace of God alone? And do you think your life is designed to show people strength? Or is it to rejoice in weakness, to magnify the strength of Christ in your life? And I still remember those conversations now. And what it showed me was that the key ingredient to oneness and unity is the grace of God and communicating to one another the grace of God, letting that be the basis for any kind of unity that we have in the church. And in a world that is often marked by uh, performance and uh, achievement orientation, uh, when a community can be so countercultural that it's marked not by those things, but by grace and showing each other love and unconditional favor, uh, it has the power to melt our hearts and to actually live into this kind of ideal that's presented for us here uh, in Acts chapter 2. And my prayer is that this community, as it has been for us, that it will continue to be that kind of community of grace, conferring that kind of grace to one another. Instead of judgment where there might be fear, where there might be shame, grace takes all of those things and melts them away. And the love of Christ is felt in such a tangible way that it starts to do something powerful, as it has in my own life too. So we have a few minutes left. If we can, you can join me as we pray, I wanted to close our time out together. Uh, take a few moments to, we don't have a lot of time, but if you can reflect on these commitments that the early church made to, to oneness and unity and what it actually looks like uh, on the ground. And whether it might be uh, thinking through the rhythms that you've adopted and incorporated uh, into your life and evaluating how much space you've made for a community. You know, whether it's thinking through uh, initiating with someone who might be very uh, different from you and committing to a level of discomfort so that someone else in the community might feel 
a little bit more comfort. Whether it's uh, sacrificing time, possessions, resources uh, to meet a need that you might identify in the community. Um, Whatever it might be, uh, praying for someone. If you could take a moment now to evaluate uh, one small way that you can commit to oneness uh, here at Harvest too. the cumulative effect of everyone committing in a very small way can have massive, massive implications for the unity of this church going forward. So if we could take a moment to individually reflect on that, uh, perhaps as you feel led, maybe even making a small commitment uh, to that end as well. Let's take a moment to pray through that. Uh, We can also take a moment to reflect on the grace that uh, we have received from from Jesus Christ, and when we when we think about His spiritual riches that have made us uh, spiritually rich, and when we think about the ways that God was so generous to us, how that can spur us to generosity as well, and when we realize that God brought us into His community embraced us, called us his children, how that fuels our ability as well to welcome other people into our homes and into our spiritual uh, family as well. So if you could take a moment to reflect on the grace that we have so abundantly received from God through Jesus. And let that be the fuel to striving for the oneness that only the Spirit can provide uh, in our church. So let's, let's pray for that too. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.